Hey, everyone. I'm Julie Gunlock, host of the Bespoke Parenting Hour. For those new to the program, this podcast is focused on how parents should custom tailor their their parenting style to fit what's best for them, their kids, and their families. Today, I'm excited to have my friend, Stephanie Lundquist Aurora, on the show. There she is. Hey, Stephanie. Hi, Julie. Thanks for having me. Hey, I don't know what is going on. I'm going to take a moment unprofessionally and fix my hair. There. I feel better. You look great. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, thanks for coming on. Um, Stephanie is the mother of three sons. Yay for, for boy moms. Um, all of which are enrolled in the Fairfax County school system. For those outside of the Virginia area that watch this show, you should know Fairfax gets a lot of attention from the media for the completely loony things they do. Their resistance to opening schools, their resistance to unmasking kids. Um, and some of the sexual content that we're now seeing in the Fairfax County schools. So it gets a lot of attention. And Stephanie's three children are enrolled in those schools, and she is fight- fighting hard for reforms. And we'll talk about that. Um, Stephanie is an author, a small business owner, and an IWN chapter leader. IWN, of course, is our sister organization, um, and she leads the Fairfax chapter. We're thrilled to have her. She's also a contributor on the network, so you can check her out there. Prior to this, Stephanie uh, worked as a political analyst and speechwriter. This is so interesting. For the Embassy of the Republic of Korea, in Australia. So I might have to find out about that. That is interesting. Uh, when not working, her hobbies include traveling with family, volunteering in her son's sports leagues, jogging, learning jujitsu. That's that's kind of interesting. We do not share that interest. Uh, reading, <laughs> painting, and trying new foods. So welcome, Stephanie. Thank you. Okay. So we have a lot of policy issues and some other things to get to. Um, but the first thing I always ask people um, is, you know, and you may not employ a particular parenting style, but if you were to sort of name or describe your parenting style, what would it be? And, and believe me, I am sort of a mix of many different styles. So where do you see yourself? Oh, that's a really interesting question. I, um, I guess what I've learned along the way is, especially if you would have asked me this before I had children, I think I would have said something entirely different. But what I found in with having three boys all with the same, what is it when you have sibling, like 99% of the same DNA or whatever, um, (laughs) is they're so different. Like all three of my boys, same parents, they're so different from each other. Yeah. And so I think I would say treat them as individuals. So my parenting style, which each with each of them is, is different. I have a parenting style, which is like tailored differently for each son. And I, so I think like very individualistic attention, I guess would be, uh, would be the big thing for me. Um, and I think, uh, also, I guess, um, be more strict when they're younger. So you don't have to as much when they're older for us has worked as kind of an overarching, Thing. you you set the boundaries and they know they they know where they are for the most part I mean yeah. everyone says you um you do the the lectures when they're down here so that you don't have to do them as much when they're up here uh, and yeah. and my oldest one is now pretty much my height so I'm really appreciating that idea um, yeah 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 but that's what I, I would say all kids are so different so I really appreciate that you that you do this because it is even just within the same family three children are so different and what is really effective with one can just completely you know 
not work with the other, send him in a direction that you don't want him going in. Yeah. And that's great advice. I think someone described it to me. One of my guests is adaptive. You're just very adaptive and you, you go with the flow. And I think that is really important. And one thing, one reason we, uh, we wanted to do this or I wanted to do this podcast, but I I know a lot of people on um, the IWF staff sort of support this idea um, that this narrative that there's a right way and a wrong way of parenting is completely uh, um, what's the word is stifling because y- you are told that by the experts or a million, I mean, go to the parenting section in your bookstore and, or on Amazon, there's a thousand different theories. And I don't, I don't like to say that it's not good to read some of these books or look at some of these experts, <clears throat> but, and I think many of the experts are, would agree with us, but there still is this sort of judgmental nature about, around parenting um, that I think really needs to come down. And so um, I love this idea of, again, just like the the show's whole mission is to tailor your parenting to the child. I think that's that's the best way to do it. So, um, so uh, you know, I think parenting, uh, I think about when I first started parenting, I didn't see myself as this sort of activist. Um, and then, you know, as I, as I was told, you have to do it this way, then I felt like, okay, wait, I have something to say about this. Of course, that does not compare to, and I was looking at it from a policy perspective, because there were policies in place that made it like tougher. And I was worried about um, parents being sort of, you know, vilified for doing parenting in a certain way. But boy, did that change after COVID. Um, I feel like suddenly everybody saw themselves as a parenting activist, um, standing up for parents' rights. And I assume that's sort of when you got activated. Maybe not. Tell me, was was that the moment? And what specifically happened to get you more in sort of a activist headspace? So I initially, when I was very upset when the schools were closed down, and I really appreciate the people who were on the front lines getting all of the signatures and the petitions and all that kind of stuff. It bothered me tremendously um, in March of 2020 when they shut down all the schools and a lot of the businesses. Um, So I was really, I was, as a small business owner, I was very, very upset about the business shutdowns because you were, as a small business owner, you're still being charged rent and liability insurance and a lot of costs that go along with having a small business. So the state of Virginia shut down businesses for, um, I think three months, but anyways, um, that's, so at the same time, they also shut down the schools starting in March of 2020. And I was watching, I had at that time, a first grader, a third grader and a fifth grader. And, um, I was kind of watching some of their, um, and it was, it was a mess for the teachers too. And I don't blame them because like in March, 2020, they weren't used to online teaching. That's crazy. Yeah, I, I didn't, I wouldn't I didn't have blame well. them at first. I didn't blame them at first. I think there was a ton right. of grace given, but two years later when they were saying, give us grace, I was like, come on. Okay. But there's fine. a way to get yes. better at it. Things we, that all, you do. we all agree that everyone needed to be patient. That's the first thing, but I'm always like, I if kind of like, I can feel myself like breaking out in hives, like just even bringing that up. I'm like, we gave you so much grace. And then you wouldn't go back into the classroom. So anyway, go on. Sorry. Agree. Um, so anyways, initially during the, the grace period, um, I, I was watching this and it was like, 
What's your favorite superhero? So instead of focusing on, you know, reading and they, they couldn't at the time, I was hearing these conversations and, and then, you know, this, I would see the screen go off because I had my own thing going on and, um, and my sons would play with Legos and not listen at all. And I was like, this isn't going to work for us. Like, we're just not an online learning family. My boys are kind of like, I'm going to turn off my screen and do what I want to do. So I was like, this isn't going to work. And then when they shut schools down again, uh, or again, for whatever, the next year after yeah. that, um, I said, this really isn't going to work. So I'm going to put this into my own hands and homeschool my kids. So I did that for a year. And that's when I, I started to, I guess when you have a lot of things to do and you're trying to educate your kids and you feel like the school district isn't performing and the teacher's union is shoving things down your throat, you start to feel really angry. Um, and and that's, I would say, the the beginning of, of the activism is, um, so while I do appreciate the people who are on the front lines, getting the petitions, open the schools, open the schools, open the schools, I was... Um, I voted with my feet. I did not want the school district to get the $18,500 still for my children who were at home with me anyway. Yes. So I thought yes. I want them to, I want them to learn and whatever it is, 18,500 times three kids. I was like, at least I'm voting with my feet. So they shouldn't get that money for not actually educating children. So I love it. That was I love it. I love it. And, and it is galling. I'm, I'm still wondering where my refund is for my property taxes. Uh, for when I homeschooled, I, like you, um, did homeschool my oldest. Um, you know, he was uh, at that point in seventh grade. That's mm -hmm. a really important year. Yes. And math is harder. You know, you're doing like pre-algebra and boy, that, that was fun. I didn't, I got a tutor for that, but, um, and, and, you know, pr pretty high level at this point, you know, he was, he was doing, um, you know, biology and things that, you know, this wasn't like two plus two and get your crayons out and let's color a butterfly. You know, this was yes. hard. And I, I knew, and my son actually had an IEP. So it was $36,000 going to the school. And I was not about mm -hmm. to let them get that money. So, um, and we pulled our children out and put them in, in a, my other two in a Catholic school. So I too voted with my feet. Um, and that isn't, I will say, I hate the word empowering, but it is because you are depriving these public schools who really did phone it in for a solid year and a half. Um, and, and so it's, it's good to feel like you're doing something. Um, your children are now back all in Fairfax. And I know there have been um, challenges. Um, when they finally opened the schools, <laughs> it was like, well, we're not going to give you guys everything because they kept a mess. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that episode because you're suing Fairfax and I'd like a status check on on that lawsuit? Well, it <laughs> failed. <laughs> We're in Fairfax County and the, the judges see things a certain way. Um, so what happened was they, they were masked and we follow the law. So initially when they went back to school, the kids were in masks and they hated it. And there were headaches and complaints and they felt like it was isolating them from friends. And it's just strange. I mean, the whole mask thing is strange. I think we'll look back at it in, you know, in hindsight in several years and be like, what were we thinking? And most of us are thinking that now, but I think the, the branch COVIDians will eventually get there at some point, maybe. Um, but we'll see. But anyways, like, so they were wearing the masks, whatever they're, they're in person. That's what everybody was cheering about. So then uh, January came along and um, Governor Yunkin won, thankfully, and he passed Executive Order 2, which meant um, that starting on, I think it was January 26th or something, the kids didn't have to wear masks anymore. So my kids were like, hooray, that's great. And, and they didn't want to wear masks. They hadn't, they didn't want to wear masks. It would never given the option. They chose not to. So anyways, masks are annoying. They felt like they were annoying. And, um, 
So they said they weren't going to wear masks. Well, obviously, the school district, like many of the things that the state does, said Fairfax County Public Schools said, we're not going to listen to the governor. And it was unclear how they could do that. It's still legally unclear how they could do how they could not follow executive order two. So my kids didn't wear masks um, and they were suspended for the younger two were suspended for 15 days. And eventually my um, for not wearing masks, it was totally their choice. And I said, I'll back you up. But every day my in my older one, it was um, nine days because he wanted to get back in and continue with um, his his. So I was like, I'll support whatever decision you make. If you want to wear a mask because this is getting weird, wear a mask. If you don't want to wear a mask, I'll support you there, too. So, again, tailor your parenting to individual children. That's so anyways. So. they were suspended for that long. So we sued. And on what grounds is still unclear to me. I still don't understand how they could do this. And I do think that, and I've thought from the beginning, and I still think this now, and there's been a lot of evidence towards this, that they just consistently are into politically persecuting even children and their families if ideologically they're different than the school. And this isn't, all they did was not wear their mask. And then, so we filed the lawsuit, lawsuit fails. That's really unfortunate. We we were like, if we if we got the same judge, I'm not sure the outcome would be any different. I'm not really sure what to do with this. But we were never suing for money or anything like that. It's just for the recognition that what they did was wrong. Um, I don't believe, I don't support a litigious society. So anyways, um, I just, I want people to be held accountable. And the way I see it, the Fairfax County School Board is not being held accountable for a lot of its decisions. Um, so anyways, um, the yeah the the lawsuit failed and i appealed to the schools individually um and they and they claim that this is a school decision about um expunging the suspensions so i appealed to the principals of both the schools and my appeal to expunge the suspensions of my three wonderful children was denied so it's it's um it's not like we did something wrong. I think that they should have said we did something wrong. We didn't follow the law. We didn't follow Executive Order Two and subsequently Senate Bill Seven Thirty Nine until March first. By the way, Senate Bill Seven Thirty Nine, where it was um, codified into legislation, was passed on signed um, with the emergency clause on February twenty second. So my kids were suspended like an additional six days or something after Senate Bill Seven Thirty Nine. But anyways, then the refu- the schools refused to. Um, expunge their suspensions. So now my children are sitting with um, a lot of suspensions on their record. I mean, that many suspensions, you would think that they were just doing crazy things like selling fentanyl or something like that's like, who gets suspended for 15 days? Like, if you look at their records, and you're like, Oh, you were you were in fifth grade, what were you doing when you were? But you know, this matters, because when they apply to colleges, they might see this on their transcripts. And that might signal what you talked about. persecuting people who are not ideologically in line with you and think about, I mean, okay, if K through 12 is crazy, think about higher education. So then, and I, you know, I don't mean to give you a heart attack, but I think about this, like then they apply to college, they look and they think, Oh, this is one of these kids who wouldn't mask. Right. Signaling. Yeah. It's a way to, to, by keeping it on the record, it is a way to continue to punish these kids and families. It's absolutely despicable. Um, and so, so you lost the, the, the judge dismissed the case, correct? Right. So he granted the, uh, the defendant's motion to dismiss. Just, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry about that. That is, that is rough, but you know what? Honestly, I think that parents, um, I, I don't think this is over. 
And I think it's worth revisiting and continuing to hammer uh, the principal, the school board on that. And I know you are, you know, very active on that. And hopefully once we see some school, some turnover on the Fairfax school board, maybe we'll see some changes in this policy. Well, I also, I've contacted the attorney general's office, so that's Good. kind of pending and uh, hopefully they do something with it as well. Good. You know, I want to talk a little bit about this sort of social contagion that's out there, gender ideology and sort of the radical gender ideology that they are pushing in schools. This is not obviously only uh, something that's happening in Northern Virginia. We see this across the country Mm -hmm. Um, and in areas where, um, you know, that are sort of ruled and and run by Democrats, um, there is this idea that the schools are the better people to take care of kids than their own parents. Um, The anti-parent feeling that we're seeing out there from government officials is truly frightening. It really is frightening to me. Um, I know you have been very involved in this issue. You actually wrote a book on gender transitioning um, and you've had an interesting sort of evolution. You're, um, you know, your, your book was, you know, very, it was about being compassionate to kids who are identifying um, as another, um, ge- you know, self-identifying as, you know, being a transgender individual or identifying as a different gender. Um, and, and you wrote that book to help parents, to guide parents into dealing with this issue. But at that time, when did you write it? Because it wasn't the same, it wasn't the same period as it is right now. When did you write that book? So this is an interesting story. I I left um, my job as a political analyst and speechwriter uh, when I had children. It wasn't my intent, um, but I when I held my first son in my arms, I was like, I looked at my husband and said, "I'm not sure what we're going to do now, but I'm never leaving him." So um, and so, make more money, husband. But anyways, <laughs> so my plans changed um, when I when I had my first son, and I was trying as much as I could to be at home with them and get work that was flexible. Um, so I I did a variety of things. I became actively involved in the Society of Children's Books Writers and Illustrators (SCBWI), and I started writing. I wanted to keep my writing skills fresh. I started writing a lot of. I published a lot in magazines and stuff like that. I wrote a lot of like fiction stories for children, and I started getting interested in writing nonfiction. So eventually, and this is supplementing our, you know, the income that I had lost because I wanted to be with my boys. But um, I did this for quite some time. And I submitted a a resume and cover letter, as you do, with um, educational market publishers. Educational market publishers provide books to libraries and schools. And um, and they you don't get royalties off the books, but basically they give you a contract you write the book for them in the, in the period that you decide and then they, they pay for it. So it's, you can supplement your income that way. It's not, but it's theirs, but it's it's theirs. It's theirs. And they have, they have procedures that they do. So anyways, I started writing these books. I've published eight of these educational market books. Um, They're, they're low budget and they, and some of the books are wonderful. And, and the ones that I thought I would be talking about more in the future wasn't, um, necessarily this one. Um, I didn't see what was coming down. But anyways, I've written eight of these different types of books that the publishers who, once you submit your resume and cover letter and some writing samples, they decide, you know, oh, I like this writer. And then they give you a contract and you write the book. So I, I've written a lot of them on like addiction and, and the dangers of vaping and refugees and the song God Bless America and the the, um, the range is large on PTSD on the topics I've written on. So I was assigned 
to write a book on coping with gender fluidity, which was kind of, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm familiar with a lot of the feminist theory up through the 90s, um, the kind of evolution of feminist theory and the way that we've kind of understood gender and stuff like that, like gender as connected to our, you know, lived experience as females. And I was like, well, this is a topic I don't really know about. So I, the editor wanted me to write it from the position of the transgender community um, or somebody who was coping with gender dysphoria and was having a really hard time. And I was like, okay, okay. So I took the contract and I know somebody who, a few different stories that have happened over time with um, just, I grew up in really a rural area. I knew a, a, a teenager who was, um, was coping with that issue. She, um, and she, she wasn't officially transgender because in rural Michigan at the time I grew up, that's not something that we said or they stated well, or anyone stated. So. No one, it wasn't just rural Michigan. It was, you know, no, no one, one was time. Yeah. Yeah. So that's true. So it wasn't, I mean, so anyways, she ended up, um, she ended up killing herself, but, and subsequently I kind of, I had some kind of sporadic experiences with this issue, uh, you know, and I, I did really, I felt compassion because I thought this must, this must be a really hard, this must be a really hard lifestyle, um, or, you know, identity to go through. And, and then there was another, um, another and family look, in know, the town. Look. And, and, you know, just if I could just say something, you know, growing up is hard, just period, right? Yeah. I don't know if you remember yourself when you were in seventh grade, but it wasn't fun. I remember myself. Yeah. It wasn't fun. And kids are kind of searching for for a feeling of belonging. And they and, and then, you know, you add in all the things in our culture right now are, you know, children's addiction to, to, um, to tech, to being online, their exposure to things they shouldn't see. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and, and all of those things combined have made for, I have made things worse for kids today. And just social media. They're always, they're always being portrayed. They're always concerned about their image. They can't just act and think somebody's not recording this or posting about me. Exactly. So it's a, it's a very strange, awful time for children. I think it's unfortunate. They can't just kind of go as we used to do, you know, stranger things play in the woods and yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Without the, without the, the, what's the the monsters and there's a word for their world. The, uh, anyway, the, but the point is, the upside yep, down, like, which frankly, I feel like we are living in the upside down with some of the things I see at school boards. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's tough. And then you add all these other things to it. And it, it, anyway, so go on. So you had, you, I think personally had a lot of compassion for people. But again, yes. this was what, you know, your experiences were what in the, you know, 90s and early aughts. Early, and then early 2000s, you have kids. And then you, yep. And again, in two, you start writing this what in 2018? 18 was when the editor. And so I, I actually reached out to the person that I knew from my hometown who was experiencing this with um, her child. And, uh, and I, so, and it was a situation, the, the parents were very supportive of their child in the way that just it's, they provide a very loving home environment and they went through a lot. They lived in a rural area. And so I wrote this book, um, kind of considering what had happened there. And also I used, um, the Google sources that come up and, you know, if you Google anything, um, they're not showing you any kind of counter narratives or anything like that. You're using, you're just kind of quickly, I, I had like a six to eight week turnaround to do this. And, um, and so I, I finished the book and I submitted it and the, the editor had, had kind of 
had a heavy hand guided me along the way. And, um, and then I finished it and I thought, okay, that was, you know, and then I, I wrote several books after that one too. So, um, and I, again, I think it's really important to understand that in 2018, we are not dealing with the 500% increase in young girls who are identifying as trans. We are not having the top surgeries and the bottom surgeries and the school boards who are pushing uh, gender ideology and gender affirming care. Seriously, in my in Alexandria School District, they've actually said we will provide this to, our, to kids, which means referrals to Planned Parenthood who give hormone blockers out after one meeting and who will give you hormones after one meeting and will set you Sometimes up with- over the phone. Over the I phone. mean, they That's do it right. over the phone. So this too. is not the same time in 2008. This was not happening. School boards were not acting in this way. There was, there may, it's interesting. There may have been those, the pornography and just, shocking smut that's in the school libraries. It might've been there, but it hadn't been discovered yet. I don't even know if it was there, but the point is I can't, I feel like I can't press this enough. 2018 is very different. It's very different. It gets published. And then suddenly I guess around 2020, I feel like was when we first started seeing this and obviously post COVID. Right. Um, Well, actually this book I wrote in 2018 and the, the way that the publishing market works is like they do all of the formatting and the picture finding and all that kind of stuff. And then it comes out in the like July, 2019, but it has like a um, 2020 publication date on it. So to make it seem more recent is the reason that they do that. So, but then it was, you're right, Julie, it completely predated all of the things with social contagion. So first of all, social contagion wasn't an issue at that point. When I was talking about this, like, especially with the the child that I knew like this, it wasn't like, hey, try this on for size. It's a great idea. You'll be accepted. That wasn't the type of community that that was. Um, and it was it was just completely different. And then something weird happened where it was like, we went from this is, you know, you hope that all people at the end of the day, you just hope that all people are kind to each other, I think is the objective. Like if we're, if we're different, you just want people to be nice, kind to each other, right? We're all different, be kind right. to each other. But what, what ended up happening after that wasn't just let's be kind to each other. It was like the school board gets involved. The teachers get involved. We move from like accepting of our differences to suggestive, which is happening now. So it's suggestive from the top. And I'm not, I'm not clear on why, but it seems pretty nefarious. So I'm like, why would you suggest that people try on this identity? Like, why would you do that? Why would you suggest that they should do things which are potentially harmful? Like and irreversible. Or, yes. And so it's, I was talking about a certain contingent of people, which I thought were the anomaly and needed compassion, not what people from the top in a very strange way are trying, seems trying to push children into like, so for example, my son, my oldest is in middle school right now. And during his first week of school, he was given three surveys, which I, I didn't see. Usually they're supposed to anything that's controversial. Parents have the right legally at the federal level to see um, if they're going to ask your child, but they don't consider gender identity as one of those conservative things now, especially not in Fairfax County. So he was given three surveys in the first week of school on what is your gender identity are you know are you a girl and i thought this is the first week of school shouldn't they be doing something else like shouldn't they be <laughs> learning or and so that's not a that's not just a accepting an environment if you have questions we're here for you um kind of thing that's like it feels like they're like cramming it down their throats and if you're in elementary school are you a tomboy are you sure it's that you're not a boy i mean these uh. conversations you see 
quite a bit. I mean, some of them are recorded. It's frightening. And, um, and that was, that was not the type of world that I was writing this book in. It's, so. it's just terrible. You know, Stephanie, I really admire you and I admire the sort of that you have really looked at this issue fully. Um, and, and you've, you, you have never veered away from compassion. You, you are steadfast in yes. that in kindness and compassion, but you have seen the danger of this and you have looked at this. You've really researched this a lot. You've really, you are really concerned about this, but this is what I hope. I sort of hope this is the journey of a lot of parents who, because I, you know, I live in a very deep, dark blue community where the school board in Alexandria has, I mentioned earlier, has said explicitly, we will provide gender affirming care. It's a phrase that sounds nice, right? It does. It sounds like it, it's filled with compassion. But as I mentioned earlier, no, that means sending your kid to Planned Parenthood, anonymously getting on hormone blockers, anonymously getting on, on, on uh, I'm sorry, puberty blockers and hormones, which can cause irreversible damage. I mean, I hope people are on Twitter seeing some of the video or whatever platform they're on seeing some of the videos of these detransitioners, these girls who regret the decision they made when they were 16, 17 years old. They've had their breasts removed. They have been on hormones for so on, on testosterone for so long that they have receding hairlines, permanently deepened their voice, face, facial, facial hair. hair. Some of them are never going to be able to have children. They have rendered themselves infertile. It is, it is, uh, it is absolutely devastating. And, and, mm-hmm. and these are, these girls, they might've gotten top surgery. Many don't get the sort of bottom surgery, but boy, if they do trying to create a phallus out of part of their arm, it is, it is, it is horrifying to see the pictures. And that's the problem is that I don't think a lot of the sort of very liberal moms who hear gender affirming care know these details. I don't think they do. And you sort of went through that journey and while still remaining compassionate, see the danger of pushing kids. And as you said, this sort of dark, nef- nefarious um, position of these school board officials and city council members, because that's what's happening in my school or in my, in, in my town, and other politicians pushing this on very vulnerable kids. Or even well, right now it's they're and they're really trying to cut parents out of it too. And I think anytime you're talking about a child. No one loves a child more than his or her parents. So always you need to have the parents need to be involved in the decisions concerning the child and stuff like that. And just recently, there's an organization in Fairfax County. Um, it's called the Pride Liberation Project. And they have tried to it's I don't know. It seems I don't know what else to call it, but it seems like it's a human trafficking ring. So they've got they claim the pride community, some in the pride community claim that this is a student run organization. And it's been proven that it's not actually a student run organization. It's run the person who's the figurehead for it um, is now a college student and provides um, all of the talking points. um, And, and when they, when they have children, um, usually middle schoolers and high schoolers get up in front of the school boards and say, um, I'm, they say, I'm queer, I'm uncomfortable, um, generally, um, I feel alone and unseen. And, uh, and 50% of us are depressed. And these are the talking points of these children, they get up, and this is what they do. And then they say, 80% of us have contemplated suicide this year. Okay, so this is like, you see the emotional extortion here, right? 
Um, and if you don't do what we say, like co-ed um, family life education or a unit on trans transitioning, um, then, you know, who, if, if we kill ourselves, the blood is on You're your hands, yeah, basically. Yeah. And that's extortion. That's it like, is. It is. Um, and you have, you have adults actually leading this. Okay. Yes. So anyway, this is what they do. And, well, then and, they- and, and Stephanie, it is, you mentioned human trafficking. These, this same group has offered to rehome Yes. Rehome students, take them away from their own parents and rehome them in a, a, a gay supporting or a queer, I'm sorry, queer friendly household. And then they, uh, the thing I love the most is, is that in the guidance from this, uh, this group, this pride Fairfax, whatever it is, they say, but just know it's sad, but you'll probably be put with a white family, which mm-hmm. kill, which just kills me. Cause they're like, sorry about that. We're not sorry. intersectional enough. We we only have a few more minutes, but I that is enormously uh, scary. And and going a bit further, though, first of all, I don't know why that organization isn't being investigated for essentially establishing a child trafficking network. That because now if they go to California, if they land in California, if they raise enough money, then they can go ahead and have the surgery. And let's let's just call it what it is. It's a double mastectomy. It's not just top surgery. They use these terms for us. But it's yep. actually, you're cutting your breasts off. It's not just top surgery. It sounds nicer. It's kind of like when everybody wanted to call female genital mutilation, female circumcision, like we use these words, which, which makes it sound culturally more friendly, right. but we should talk, we should talk about it, what it is, not top you're surgery. Right. And I appreciate that reminder. Cause I called it, I have, a, I, I use those when I'm talking quickly about it, I'll use their words. And Me it's too. Important. It's, it's hard very, to. Yeah. It's very important. That you say a double mastectomy on perfectly healthy breast tissue of, often of a minor of, of like girls who just developed just developed it is it is tragic they will never get that back I mean you there are many things that are irreversible about these gender affirming care um, about gender affirming care for instance you know the the lowering of the voice um, and po- possible sterilization um, but there have been cases where okay you know you can't if, you, if you're not on long enough you might be able to to it might not be, although I think the voice deepening is something that is, is, is pretty, it happens pretty quickly. But the point is, is that um, it, you cannot ever go back after you've, re- you've removed your breasts. And there have been, I've seen some people say, well, you can always get implants as if implants are capable of lactation, as if implants feel the same, as if there aren't baby. problems because you know, it are problems with sensation. It's absolutely monstrous how these people pushing it just gloss over those things. And on the mind of a 15 year old, a 16 year old, even a 10 year old, you know, and, and let's, let's be clear, even a 24 year old, their brains are still developing and it is just terrible. The misinformation that people, that kids are getting, but, and I want to talk though a little bit more because, you know, as I'm saying, Oh, the misinformation kids are getting in your mind, you're like, well, at least there's a parent there you know, to, to protect them. And you know, you mentioned parents are increasingly getting cut, cut out of things. Shockingly. I can't, I honestly, and why am I shocked? Why am I shocked? Why are we but ever shocked anymore? Why am I ever shocked anymore? Right. There is a representative in, in Virginia, for those outside of Virginia listening, we have a, we're a Commonwealth and we have a house of delegates and, uh, and in the house of delegates, there is a woman named uh, representative Elizabeth Guzman, she does represent a northern part, a northern district of Virginia. So northern Virginia, you know, where all the Looney Tune uh, uh, elected officials are. 
she has introduced a bill to criminalize parent to criminalize parents essentially who do not affirm their their child's suddenly identifying as another gender right um and so if you do not accept their new pronouns if you don't accept their new name if you don't provide them with care in order to transition you might face a felony this just happened yesterday i'd love to get your thoughts on that I just, like you said, it's it's shocking that I'm surprised. I, I think that this is just awful. But um, really, the it begs the question, do we not live in the United States of America right now? It, or is Virginia not actually in the United States? Because we've got the First Amendment, which says that you don't need to be forced to do things against your religion. Um, and this is definitely a religious violation for many people or against um, your freedom of speech. So the forced pronouns is, is compelled speech. So there's that issue. And then just the, the 14th amendment issue, like, are we, do we not have any kind of parental rights over our children anymore to make decisions about what's the best for them? So I don't, I don't understand how this is even a, how it's constitutional. And what's really scary is even if you can challenge it in the courts afterwards, like if it were to be passed, how many people will this actually affect? Like how, how many parents will they actually just kind of throw in the slammer for not doing what they want? I mean, you know, you know, I think it's even more insidious than that. I actually don't think first of all, Elizabeth Guzman is so done with her career. This woman should literally buy a farm and start like, I don't know, gardening because there is no way this woman has a future in Virginia politics. I mean, this is worse than what Terry McAuliffe said. Terry McAuliffe, who blew blew away any kind of political career, simply, well, didn't simply say, but he said, and it was provocative, but he said, parents shouldn't have anything to do with uh, curriculum. That is nothing compared to Elizabeth Guzman saying that parents should be thrown in the slammer when they don't affirm their children's gender, new gender ideology. Now, this is the thing, too, is that if you look at you know, some of the studies, we know that the majority of people who suffer from this or who, who claim to be transgender suffer from a multitude Underlying of conditions. Uh, yes. Okay. So whether it's depression or anxiety, which I mean, who didn't when you were in middle school, right? And then body dysphoria, you have um, autism. Many, many of these kids are on the autism spectrum. Um, and and, to, and and who knows about that? I mean, maybe some school counselor, it's in their file or something, but it's the parents and the parents are the ones who are on the front lines dealing with their kids and all the know other them well, know them well, and then you're going to cut them out. It is so, it is so, um, I mean, <laughs> we need a new word for government overreach. Um, this doesn't, it, government overreach doesn't quite capture what, um, what delegate, I keep calling her rep, but what delegate Guzman has done here. This is, I think this will, and, and thank you. Thank you, uh, delegate Guzman for doing this right before the mid midterms. I think this is something that will definitely get people. Well-timed. Yes. There's no way to motivate parents than to just threaten to throw them in jail because you don't like the way that they're raising their children or you don't agree with their political perspective. So, I, I, I want to conclude here on a, on a happy note and, and kind of get your thoughts on what do you think the future of Virginia, Northern Virginia schools, schools across the country, the role of teacher, if, you know, I always wonder, like, are teachers going to start c- coming back to reality? Are we going, are we going to, you know, I, I mean, I know that this, the teachers unions is a disaster and that's a whole nother issue, but you know, what do you think? Are we going to win this? Are parents going to win this fight? 
Oh, I would love to say yes. And that's what I'm hoping. I mean, you, you don't know if you don't try. So a lot of people say you're fighting a losing battle, but I think like any battle is lost. That's not first fought. Um, so I think it is a battle worth fighting. The odds are all stacked against us, but there have been a lot of battles that have been won when the odds are stacked against you. So I wouldn't be fighting if I didn't think it was winnable. Um, that said, I am also in tandem while I'm fighting, starting to seriously consider private schools while I fight this fight, because I think right now is a very hard time. I think they're recruiting um, teachers who are in drinking the same Kool-Aid that they that they are. I think that that's intentional right now. So they're drinking, you know, they're the, the teachers that they're choosing, they're purposefully selecting, and that has generational impact as well. Well, um, the, the good news is that the parents are waking up. So that's the most promising thing that we have. Like institutionally, we need to, we need the turnaround and hope isn't a method. So we, we need to fight. So I don't know that it will be immediate, but I, I think it's winnable if we all work together. I guess I'll try to end on optimism too. Wow. <laughs> Stephanie, thanks so much for coming on. And um, I encourage everyone to go on IWN. Um, that's IWN. I'm sorry, IWnetwork.com um, and check out Stephanie's work there. She also publishes op-eds. I feel like you publish an op-ed a week. I can't even keep up, but um, she I have a lot in, to say. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> she is in local Virginia papers as well as national outlets. I think you're, have you been published in the Federalist yet or yeah. So she's over at the Federalist and other places. And Stephanie, if there's any social media um, or a platform where they can find you, why don't you tell them that now? Thank you. I'm actually completely off social media. I think it's toxic. So I'm taking a break. Good, <laughs> but thank you for that. <laughs> but, um, but Stephanie, real quick, before we let you go, you're also shadowing the Fairfax school board and people can watch that. I know uh, another IWN parent, Harry Jackson, um, uh, runs that and you're often on the, on there with him. So maybe, maybe the, um, the place that they can find that podcast, yes. which is great fun to watch, by the way. Thank you. Uh, so that's uh, usanow.tv. Um, Sam Ataro is the producer of that. And we live stream our comments just the same time that the school board meeting is going on. And we've actually received quite a lot of pressure um, from different people um, in phone calls. To, to A lot of people have been trying to shut that down. Um, it's wildly unpopular with school board members. So <laughs> it's I, that's how you know you're on target. But yes, yeah, please, do, <laughs> please do sign in and watch that usanow.tv. All right. Well, thank you again for all you're doing um, to improve life in Fairfax and, and getting the word out on these important issues. And um, really appreciate you joining me today. Thanks, Julie.